this birth. Got my hopes set on heaven because it's hell here on earth. My life was a mess. Calls will be recorded and may be monitored. You may start the conversation now. Hey, hey. I was telling Destry, I, I said, when uh, it comes to wrongful convictions, I was like, uh, uh, Laura's pretty passionate. I said, and, <laughs> she, she, ain't, she ain't scared. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Aggravating Circumstances, a true crime podcast. This is season one, episode 11, Double Standards. This is an ongoing story, so if you're just getting started, hit pause, go back to episode one. We will wait for you. Today, I want to finish up talking about the trial. Before we get into the nuts and bolts of that, I'd like to spend a moment talking about memories. There's a psychologist who's done 40 plus years of research on memories. Her name is Elizabeth Loftus. She is quite famous for showing the fallibility of memory. There's an article in Knowable Magazine published in 2017 called Making the Case Against Memories as Evidence. And I'd like to make a few quotes from that. The first thing is it says, from the early 70s to now, Loftus's work has centered on a common theme. Memories aren't reality. Instead, our recollections can be molded, contaminated, and even created out of whole cloth, a phenomenon for which she coined the term the misinformation effect. The article goes on to talk about several of her studies, and one was where they showed fast-moving film clips to students of a car accident. And they said, they asked them later what they saw. And when they asked a question like, did you see the children getting on the school bus? Over a quarter of the people said, yes, I did, even though there were no children and no school bus in the film clip. It is that easy to instill a memory. Many of our interrogation techniques and questioning techniques that have been used over the years have been shown over and over to create false confessions and false memories from witnesses. And this is a huge problem, and it hasn't been adequately addressed in our law enforcement policies. When I read through Destry McKinney's case, one of the first things that happens is all of the witnesses and people that were questioned were all questioned off the record before any recorded testimony or statements were taken. We know from years of research and hundreds of wrongful convictions that it is easy to instill false memories in witnesses about things that they saw or things that they did. And the only way that you can go back and really track this down is if you have the entire interrogation or questioning recorded. And at the time, none of the questioning of any of these witnesses was recorded at the beginning. They had them go through their statements and what they were going to say, and then they hit record. And this is a common practice that they're trying to eliminate in law enforcement because it creates such a problem. There was a really interesting study that was done fairly recently. This was another study that Loftus did where they took a group of volunteers. These were college students and they spoke to their parents to get some details of their childhood and things. And they told them that 
they had had a stressful experience as a child where they either had something like they were bitten by a dog or where they'd had an interaction with with the police. These were absolutely fabricated. None of this was true. And they spoke to these students about these and they gave them some of the details and said, do you remember when this happened? And they thought when they did this study that they would get a few of them would say, oh, yes, I remember that. It was dramatic. It was 76% said, yes, I remember that. Not only did they claim to remember these incidents that were completely fabricated, they created details about what happened, what the weather was like, what they were wearing, what the police officer's name was. It was incredible that they were able to create these false memories of this childhood event. The other thing that they found was that they were nice to these students. These students were in a pleasant interaction during these very casual interviews. These were not interrogations. They were not in police departments. They were not being intimidated and sleep deprived and kept from food and all the things that police will do in interrogations. So if you can create a false memory in a happy college student who thinks they're having a casual conversation for a study, imagine what you can create with someone that you are potentially intimidating. So today let's talk about the trial. The first thing I want to say is that trials are not reality. Trials are a performance. They put witnesses on the stand and through a series of questioning techniques, each side tries to get the witness to say something to help their case or hurt the other side's case. There's a lot of manipulation and ridiculousness that goes into trials. When we heard last week from Lisa McKinney and she said that the trial just didn't seem balanced, it seemed way off. And I hear them talk about the material or the cutting and all cutting is supposed to have been tested. And But I'm not hearing everything because his attorney is really speaking low. And then I just kind of think things are going wrong. I look over in the jury box and the juror, one juror is asleep. And in my mind, and you know, it's like, how is he going to get a fair trial if one of the jurors is actually asleep? in the jury box. I just felt like it was unbalanced, like something just was so off. And then in my mind, I was like, are they really working for him? Are they really fighting for him? Is this the best that they could do? Right before the trial, they tell me that they're not gonna let the young lady testify who Stevelin attempted to kill. Then they say that they had another witness, but couldn't find this this other witness. So I'm like, everything was, it just seemed like everything was just going haywire at that point. At first glance, I can say that this was an incredibly short trial. It essentially lasted roughly two and a half days. It started on a Monday. They did jury selection and seated the jury at the end of the day, and they closed Monday out with the opening statements. 
a few episodes back, I went through the opening statement for the state, and I still haven't gone into the opening statement for the defense, which I will mention briefly. So that was Monday. Tuesday was entirely witnesses by the state. Wednesday up to lunch was witnesses by the state. Wednesday after lunch was the defense case. And Thursday morning were their closing statements. That's it. And then the the verdict was made on Thursday. So this was essentially two days of testimony. Almost all of it was the case by the prosecution. The state had 19 witnesses and the defense had one. There should have been more. And I'll get into that as we go through. But the state had 19 witnesses and the defense had one. So if I was in the jury and I watched 19 people that the state presented, even if what they said didn't really corroborate with their version of the case, and then the defense has only one witness and that witness is the defendant, I don't know how I would come up with a conclusion other than the state clearly had their shit together and the defense didn't seem like they did. Before I go through all the details of the case, I want to go back to what happened on February 6th of 2000. Destry McKinney had gotten up that morning. He had a meeting that morning with a friend to work on distribution of their music. Remember, this is before iTunes was a thing, and back then you sold CDs and cassettes. And so he had a meeting. Before he left for that meeting, Stevelin had called him from her mother's house and said, hey, I want to come get my bed. And he said, I have a meeting, so I can't do it right now. So he left and he went to his meeting. The next thing he knows, he's at the meeting and he gets a phone call again from Stevelin, but this time she's actually calling from his cousin's house, which is right next to his studio. I have heard from her and she told me that Stevelin came in and used her phone to call him and she interacted with her. She was never questioned by police about this and never made a statement or testified in court about it. So when Destry saw that Stevelin was calling from his family's house, which is right next to his studio, he decided that he had better go over there. So he goes over there. When he arrives, she is in a small car. Now, this car was not large enough to carry this bed, which was like four by eight, roughly. It was, I believe it was a a bunk bed. They describe it as a bunk bed or an L-shaped bed a couple different times, but it had some white railings. And he said, you know, it's not going to fit in your car. How do you want to do this? And she said, well, I'll go get a truck to get it. So she contacts Chris Gaddis, who goes and borrows his uncle's truck to come get it. So while she went to go get Chris, Destry decided that he was just going to carry the bed down to the edge of the road so that she could just pull up and load it up. Because remember, he's at this meeting and he wants to get back to the meeting. The meeting was with Mr. Williams. Before he left that meeting, he told him, I'll be right back. Mr. Williams was never questioned. He did not testify. There's another witness that should have been asked about the story. So Destry tells him he'll be right back. He goes to get the bed. Stemlin has arrived It won't fit in her car. She's left to go get Chris in his uncle's truck. And Destry decides to take the bed down to the edge of the driveway to help facilitate this. At first, he put the bed in the back of his car in the trunk and was taking it down the driveway. But it's a rough, washed out gravel country driveway. 
and it started knocking the paint off of his car. Here's another part of his story that could have easily been corroborated, but there was no testing done on the car to see if the paint was knocked off from the bed railing. When he realized that this was happening, he decided it would be safer just to carry the railings down. So while he's carrying the railings down, Stevlin comes back and Chris arrives with the truck. Stevlin takes issue with the bed railing being down by the road and calls him, and I quote, a black motherfucker, and starts screaming and cursing at him about the bed railing being down there. One of the things that she had advised him before she had left to go get Chris and the truck was that she didn't want the mattress because she thought he had probably been having sex on it. And so he had taken the mattress out to the burn pile out back. In rural areas in Alabama, and I used to live in one, it's very common practice that you have a burn pile. It's also common practice that when you go to the burn pile, you take a weapon because you never know what kind of wild critters you might find at the burn pile. So Dastry testified that he had taken a pistol with him when he carried the mattress back to the burn pile in case there were wild animals. So he had the pistol with him, and Stevlin comes back with the car and Chris Gaddis, and she starts screaming at him. And during this verbal altercation, at some point, she grabs for her purse Now, if you remember the testimony from her attempted murder charge with her victim, Miss S, it was common knowledge that she carried a gun in her purse. Destry felt very threatened by this action. And so he actually pulled his gun, pointed it at her, told her to get out of there, and she put the purse down. And then they were basically backing away from each other. And she darted for the purse again. And so he dove into the car window and grabbed the purse. And I'm going to read directly from a letter he sent me, which is also identical to what he said in court when he testified about this particular incident. He says, how Stevlin's car window really got shattered. At my residence, we were trading colorful comments when she got into her car and grabbed her purse. I knew she carried a gun and I wasn't trying to get shot. So I pulled mine and came around her car. She still had her purse. So I tucked my weapon, reached through her window and got hold of that purse. While up to my waist inside her window, I opened the purse and thanked God, no gun. This isn't in the letter, but there was a box cutter in the purse. So there was a weapon of sorts. I then noticed her rolling up the window to trap me in. Of course, I pulled myself out and that's when the glass shattered. No gun was involved in breaking her window, and once I was sure she wasn't armed, I put mine away. Chris Gaddis testified that he saw this, that the window was broken, and that Destry had put the gun away and had tucked it back into his pants. Destry told them both to leave. He said, get out of here. I will put the remainder of the bed at the side of the road. And he told them to leave. So Chris had loaded all but one section of the bed into his truck, and he left. When he left, he said that the gun was put away. After he left, Stevlin came at Destry with the car. He testified four different times. And the last time was when he turned around. He had the phone. He was calling the police. And 
he couldn't get away and, and he shot into the car. He then drove her to the hospital, got there in record time, ruptured his gas tank on the way, was told to leave to move the car because it was pouring fuel over the emergency room entrance. And on his way to the gas station with the car, he called Stevlin's mother and told her what happened. He told her that Stevlin had been shot and she had been shot by the person that she tried to run over. And when she said, well, that person must be you. And he said, yes, it was an accident. So we'll get into that a little bit later. But I want to go through this trial and the 19 witnesses that the state presented and the lack of witnesses for the defense. They could have had Mr. Williams testify that he was at that meeting to corroborate that story. They could have testified that Destry said, I'll be right back. So he didn't leave intending to murder someone. He thought he'd be right back. They could have had his cousin testify when Stevlin came in and used her phone. There's so many things that should have happened that didn't. So honestly, when I read through this trial transcript, it feels like being kicked in the stomach. But let's get into it. So the first witness was Stevlin's brother. He essentially identified a picture of her as the victim and said that he knew that Destry and Stevlin had dated in the past. And that was the extent of his testimony. The second witness was Chris Gaddis, who I've already mentioned. And he testified about the window being broken. He testified about her reaching for the purse and Destry grabbing the purse. But then he testified that he gave her the purse back. He also that he was told to leave. And the other interesting thing, and this is really important, was he testified that Stevlin's car was pointing down the driveway towards the road when he left. When the shooting happened, her car was pointing the opposite direction, going up the driveway. So that also corroborates Destry's story that she actually had left and gone out onto the road and then she came back to try to run him over again. And this was after he had said, I'm calling the police and you're going to go back to jail because you're violating your bond, which probably would have enraged her. And so really nothing that Chris said disagreed with Destry's version of events. But Chris had left when the actual shooting took place. So unfortunately, he was not a witness to that. The third and fourth witnesses were two people that saw Destry driving to the hospital with Stevlin in the car. I'm going to call them Ms. L and Mr. C. So Ms. L was extremely upset because there was a narrow bridge on the road, and she testified this was a bridge that wasn't actually wide enough for two cars to pass. But he was going so fast that when he overtook them and passed them, that he actually hit her car and damaged it. So she had asked her husband to try to catch him so they could get the license plate so they could call the police and try to get him to pay for the damage they had just under her car. She said they were going so fast she couldn't really see what was happening. She believed there were two people in the car and the passenger was leaning so far back that she couldn't even tell if the person was in the front seat or the back seat. This was the extent of what she said when she called 911 that day and her initial statement to police. What's really interesting is during her testimony, now the trial is actually four and a half years after this date happened. And during her testimony, she's saying that he was driving really fast. He was too fast to get the license plate. I couldn't tell what gender the other person was. 
but she found out later that they had gone to the hospital and what had happened and then it was a woman and she said well I was really upset because I remembered a couple years later that this was a domestic violence situation she didn't know that at the time and she didn't say anything about that and they said well was he hitting her and she said well it looked like he was pushing her down Remember, he's holding pressure on her gunshot wound as he's driving with one hand and holding pressure with the other. And the prosecutor says, oh, he was hitting her. And she says, well, he was pushing her down. He could have been hitting her. And they said, well, and you remember this later. And she said, yes, well, when we thought this was going to trial a couple of years ago, that's when I remembered it. And they said, so your first statement where you said you couldn't tell what was happening was incorrect. She says, yes, that was incorrect. I was going to correct it when this was about to go to trial a couple years ago. I firmly believe this is a change of evolving memories because she found out what happened and she was getting trial prep from the prosecution about what they wanted her to say, which is very different from what she said at the time. Everyone said they passed so fast she couldn't even get the license plate and she couldn't even tell if the person was in the front seat or the back seat. And now, oh, it was a domestic violence situation and he was pushing her or he could have been hitting her. Okay, moving on. So the fourth witness, Mr. C, said basically the same thing that they passed so fast he couldn't really tell details, but he felt like the passenger was being held down and was trying to come out of that car. I've had people pass me very fast on the road, and I would be hard-pressed to come up with those kinds of details. The versions of events that these witnesses said still corroborate his story. He was going as fast as he could to the hospital. He was holding pressure on a gunshot wound, and he was driving with the other hand. I don't really have a problem with anything they said or disagree with that, other than the prosecution is trying to get them to say that he was hitting her in the car which seems pretty nonsensical. Why is he driving at 100 miles an hour to try to get her to the hospital if he's going to like hit her on the way? It's just ridiculous. So the fifth witness was the 911 operator, and she essentially said exactly what the other two people had said that they called. They saw someone driving, and there was a passenger that was potentially being held down in the car. So the sixth witness was the registration clerk, at the emergency room and she testified that he was extremely upset he was extremely shaken that he was saying Stevlin don't leave me but she said he thought he was saying Stephanie because she didn't know her name yet that he came in and said she'd been shot she testified that a guard told him to leave and that when she looked out the car it wasn't a small fuel leak it was pouring fuel all over the platform of the emergency room the seventh witness was the emergency room nurse who stated that she took in Stevlin, they started CPR, and they started treatment. The eighth witness was the coroner who came to get Stevlin after she passed at the ER, and he is not a medical examiner or a forensic pathologist. He is the coroner who works at a funeral home, and so his only job was to essentially secure the body and transfer it, and so he testified to that. The ninth witness was the officer who arrested Destry on the side of the road, and he basically described how he pulled him over right in front of the Chevron and arrested him of interest. When they asked him if he was in the courtroom, he said, no, I don't see him. So he didn't recognize him in court 
which no one is denying that they had the right person, but that I thought that was interesting. The 10th witness was another officer who was at the scene and came to help. The 11th witness was someone who came and secured the crime scene and also said that the car was pointed up the driveway, which was important because the prosecution tried to say that that didn't happen. But when Chris left, the car was pointed out the driveway. And when the shooting happened, it was pointed back in the driveway. So clearly the car had been moved around. The 12th witness worked with the police department and he identified that there was a large pile of glass where the window had been broken and that it was way up the driveway by the house and that the car was actually found where the shooting occurred way down at the bottom of the driveway. So this also corroborates Destry's story about how the window was broken and then she tried to run him over and then she actually left and came back and came back up the driveway to hit him again. He testified that there was a bloody smear on the front bumper, that there was a shell casing in front of the front bumper, that the bed frame was bent and had and that there were scratches and white paint on the hood of the car. And he also testified that there was a box cutter in her purse. Now, this is where things get really interesting. So they took pictures of this bloody smear on the front bumper. They took pictures of it with a ruler. They identified it. They testified about it. This officer even said it was blood. There were rocks and grass and things up the driveway that he thought had blood on them. They collected those for evidence. They tested those rocks. They did not have blood on them. But you know what they didn't test? They didn't test that bloody smear on the front bumper. So the only blood that was really on the outside of the car that corresponded to where he was standing when the shooting occurred and the bullet hole in the windshield and where the casing was found, which was in front of the car, that would have corroborated the fact that he got hit by the car and was injured. They didn't test it. The 13th witness was the investigator who had custody of Destry's clothing. And he also evaluated several skid marks and tire tracks that were down on the road and at the end of the driveway. And so he did testify that there were quite a few skid marks. So I think that would potentially relate to Stevlin trying to run him over and him leaving at a high rate of speed to get her to the hospital. But they did not connect those skid marks or tire marks to any vehicles. The 14th witness was another investigator who also measured skid marks and identified the the bed railing and that it was bent. The 15th witness was the chief deputy who went through the house. They served a search warrant on the studio and they found they found a pistol in the house. There were some rifles. They found some magazines, some uh, target ammunition, and there were a couple of ammunition boxes that were dusted for prints. And he testified that there was a 9mm Glock found in the house and there was a two Glock handgun boxes that were found that were empty. The 16th witness was the forensic DNA analyst, and he said that he did not test the pants that Destry was wearing the first time they were sent to the lab. They were sent, but they weren't tested. And when they were sent the first time, there was no mention of a defect in the pants, but the pants were sent years later for a second testing with Destry's blood to compare the blood stains on the pants to Destry because he said, I was injured and I was hit by the car. And when the pants arrived the second time, he noted that there was a large 
defect in the pants. Now, this is the defect, the square that was cut out of the pants that was found after the trial. So he took time to note there was a large defect in the pants the second time they arrived years later. He did not know anything about a defect the first time, which makes me believe maybe it wasn't there. The personal property envelope that defect was that square of pants was found in is not signed and it does have a date on it but because it's not signed we literally have no idea at what point that square of pants was put in that envelope and in a hearing after this trial the prosecutor tried to say that Destry had that square of bloody pants in his pocket And he just refused to sign the personal property envelope. And I will get into that in a bit. But if you've just been arrested for a murder case and you have a piece of cloth that's covered with blood in your pocket, do you think they're just going to put it with your personal property or do you think they're going to take it as evidence? Really? So the forensic analyst, this was the 16th witness, he testified that there was no blood on the rocks that they tested. There was nothing from outside the vehicle tested that the shorts that he did test that Destry was wearing did have blood on them, but not enough for DNA evidence for DNA testing, which is really problematic. And they didn't test the pants that were covered with blood. So they didn't test the blood on the the bumper. They didn't test his pants, but they did test his shorts, which didn't have enough blood for DNA testing. Please tell me this. You don't think this is a conspiracy. The 17th witness is a trace evidence examiner. This is the examiner who tested the car in September of 2003. He testified that it had been repainted with two coats of primer, a color coat and a clear coat. And the prosecutor said, well, there should have been paint from the bed railing on the car. And he said, well, there wasn't any, but the car had been sold and repainted. And this was years later. So as we talked in a previous episode, it's just all ridiculous. The 18th witness was the forensic pathologist. And he said there was one bullet wound and she had glass injury from the bullet going through the windshield. And the prosecutor tried to get him to say that her hands were just like up in a defensive position. And he said, no, the evidence shows that her hands were wrapped around the steering wheel. So even the forensic pathologist testified that her injuries were consistent with a single gunshot wound and that her hands would have been wrapped around the steering wheel, not just up. And there were also no defensive wounds. There were no other issues. And she had a bruise on her forehead. The forensic pathologist said that that was consistent with the kind of injury she might have gotten in the car from either hitting someone or something like Destry or hitting her head on something when she was shot. And that he had actually seen a case just the week before where somebody was in a car and had an identical injury to their forehead from being in a car accident. And later, the prosecutor says, well, Destry hit her, that that's where she got the wound in her head, that that she hit her. But that's not what the witness said. And that's not what the forensic pathologist said. And he said that the injury to the top of her head was consistent with like smacking it on the steering wheel or the top of the car or whatever. And I have a huge problem. So I've called this episode double standards because the prosecutor called Destry a liar 
and pulled out every little tiny thing he said and said he was lying. And he said in his closing statement that Destry wouldn't know the truth if it, quote, slapped him in the face. Yet the prosecutor gets to lie constantly. He lied about how her head got injured based on what the witnesses said. He lied about what the people said was happening when they saw him pass them in their cars from 911. And he claimed that the reason that the whole altercation started was that when Stevlin arrived, he was out back burning her bed. And so he's burning her bed. So, of course, she's angry. You know what? I know who burned the bed. They never questioned them. They never asked them. Dester wasn't doing it. Destry didn't burn the bed, but the prosecutor gets to stand up and say Destry was burning her bed, and that's why all this happened, and that's why she was upset. The day was kind of weird that day. It was a, it was really weird. I hadn't talked to my dad that day, and I'm not sure who did, but normally I'll go up the hill, go say what's up, because you had the hill, which was where he stayed at. So like those three houses, that's, that was our fun for the day. Like just going up the hill, coming back down, walking the dog, they had dogs, walking dogs, stuff like that. And so that day, me and my friend, Jamichael, we was taking trash up the hill because they had a burn pile, which I do believe is like the custom, especially for Southerners. I think everybody got a burn pile. We seen a bed in the burn pile. I'm like, what the, what is this? It's weird. But we, we, we wanted to burn in the burn pile anyway because it really wasn't nothing to do that day. So we lit the fire in the burn pile, came back down the hill. Stevlin's car is in the front of the driveway. And it was just sitting there. And I, I believe the door was open. I do believe the door was open. We just looking at each other like, that, that's weird. Nobody ever just parks right there in front of the driveway when you first come in. Nobody ever does that. So that was weird. We looked in the car. I think seeing her purse in the car, and then uh, we walked back to Aunt Janice's house. So we get to telling them like, yeah, her car out there. And I believe Ann, my cousin Ann, I believe she was there at the time. And I think she went to uh, check on, ch- check the car or whatever, and she seen what she seen. But before all of this happened, Stevlin had came over to my Aunt Janice's house to use the phone. She had some clothes with her or something like that. So before that, she had came to the house, but I didn't know what, because she left abruptly. She didn't really say nothing or nothing. She, when she, she got there, then she seemed like as soon as she got there, she was leaving. And she did seem kind of mad. She seemed kind of in a rush. Somebody needs to go through and investigate every single thing. For example, Quinn, you said that you went and looked in the car that yeah. day. Did the police yeah. did the police question you about that? No, about never. The car? No, and, never. And there was another young man with you, right? Yep, me and Jamaica. Yep. Did he get questioned? Never. And they said something about well, this when I was younger. This when I was younger. They said something about him burning the bed or something like that. Right. He burned the mattress. Yeah, but that was us though. Oh, that was you. You burned the mattress. Yeah, me and Jamaica burned the mattress. But it was on the burn pile. Yeah, it was on the burn pile, but we the ones that burnt it. He didn't burn nothing. When I was younger, I didn't know if that was significant or not, but it would make me mad. Cause I'm like, they saying he burnt the bed and we did that? This is crazy. You know what I mean? Like, I didn't know if it was significant or not. 
Well, that's one more thing that they see. That's where I say the prosecutors, they just get to make shit up. Yeah. That's one more thing that they just made up. Like, you, here I am. You're telling me you did it. They said he did it. Right. Why does the prosecutor get a pass for lying, but the defendant, whose story is fully corroborated by essentially all the witnesses, because when he called Stevlin's mother, he said she was shot by the person who ran her over. He called that a lie. He said, well, that's a lie. You didn't say that you did it. Well, okay. He's calling her mother to tell her mother that she was just shot. That was a pretty tough phone call. I'm really okay with the fact that he didn't just immediately say, I shot your daughter. I mean, how do you have those conversations? But he's a liar, so we can't believe anything else he says. But the prosecutor can make stuff up. Why why does it work that way? Like, why is that okay? They can just make up anything they want and they get a pass. But if the defendant says one word that they think, you know, could be twisted around. The other thing the prosecutor said was all the dirty tricks that the defense team tried to play. Dirty tricks? They presented one witness who was the defendant. I'm not sure what kind of tricks they tried to play. The prosecutor's trying to get people to say that he was hitting her in the car when none of them said that at the time. None of them told 911 that. None of them gave that in their statements. And they, quote, remembered it years later, and we're going to correct it then. Let's just talk for a minute about dirty tricks. So one of the things that happened in this case, and that happens in a lot of wrongful convictions, is that you have somebody who has no criminal history or no criminal record, and the prosecutor will try to get them convicted on a different charge or a smaller charge before the big case, because you take somebody who's never been in trouble with the law, who has no record whatsoever, and then you get some kind of conviction for something. And then when the big trial comes around, they can say, are you a convicted criminal? And they have to say yes. For example, there's a the case of Thomas Hainsworth. This was a case that was featured on the Innocence Project Files, which if you haven't seen, you should definitely watch. And he spent 27 years in prison for a series of rapes that he did not commit. They did his trials in all separate trials. So once they were able to get a conviction, and I believe he was actually exonerated from one of the first cases, but they were able to get a conviction. Well, then every case after that, they said, are you a convicted rapist? And he had to say yes, even though he didn't do it. And then it was much easier to get additional convictions against him because now he has to say yes. So this is strategy, and it's so dirty. Now, Thomas Hainsworth was completely innocent. After he was arrested, the rapes that he was accused of continued to happen while he was sitting in prison. And eventually, they finally got DNA and proved that he was not the rapist. He spent 27 years in prison for something he did not do. So why does this matter for Destry? So Destry McKinney was honorably discharged from the army. He was a business owner. He was a father. He was a single father at the time with three small children he was taking care of. But when they arrested him in the driveway, they found a bag of marijuana 
which he believes fell out of Stevelin's car during everything that happened. After he had been in prison for three and a half years, excuse me, jail for three and a half years waiting on his trial, they prosecuted him for the marijuana possession. And his attorney convinced him to plead guilty because it was a plea bargain and they didn't have time or resources to worry about a marijuana possession conviction while he was waiting on his murder trial. And so they said, look, just plead guilty and it'll be time served because he'd already spent three and a half years in jail and they gave him a three-year sentence. And so he'd already spent three years. So to him, it seemed based on what his attorney advised him to do, like the right thing to do. Well, what this caused is at the trial when he testified, the prosecutor was able to say, are you a convicted felon? And he had to say yes. And then he tried to explain that it actually wasn't his drugs, but it this is how the system works. 95% of convictions are plea bargains, and people plead guilty to things they don't do all the time because it's easier and safer than fighting it. And of course, this was one more way that the prosecutor on the stand got to call him a liar by making fun of him and saying, oh, they weren't your drugs. Well, they weren't. They fell out of her car. But it was one of those things where, to me, this is just a dirty trick because now he's a convicted criminal on the stand for his murder case. But all of this came out of the same day and he didn't even do it. The 19th witness by the state was the forensic scientist who testified that there was only one bullet, that there was no evidence that he fired more than one shot. So of these 19 witnesses, all of them corroborated Destry's story, and nothing that any of them said disagreed with what he said happened. And then the only witness that the defense put up was Destry. I feel like they didn't even try really hard. Like, Lisa's calling this unbalanced is absolutely accurate. There's so many people that they could have had testify, and I feel like they had had all of their eggs in one basket with Stevlin's victim, Ms. S., and when they told them the morning of the trial that she couldn't testify, I don't think that they had much of a chance at that point. When Destry took the stand, he told what happened, and... The prosecutor called him a liar and said, we can't believe anything you say, and told the jury that he wouldn't know the truth if it slapped him in the face, and said he asked for a lawyer, and he wasn't cooperative because he asked for an attorney. As we've mentioned previously, that is your right. It is your right to have an attorney. I would have asked for an attorney too, and God forbid I ever get in any trouble, but if I do, I'm not telling them anything either. So the fact that they use that against them is so despicable. As you know, they found him guilty. And right after the trial, they found the square of pants in a personal property envelope that came back with his blood all over it. And we'll be talking about that next week. Thanks for coming along for this ride. Everyone fasten your seatbelts. Don't forget those kids in the back seat. And everyone, please stay safe. <music>